Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. While you're turning there, I'll open this up in prayer. God, thank you for your word and for the truth that's in it. I pray that as we move into our Christmas season, or we're fully fledged into our Christmas season, we remember why we are worshiping and why we are celebrating. I pray that you would speak through me this morning, that the words of my heart um, and the the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has, de- he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." So this morning, I want to ask the question, ask and answer the question, who is this beloved son that we believers, those who who profess faith in Christ, who is this beloved son whose kingdom that we are in? This is the same son talked about in John 3, 16, whom God gave to the world because he loved, he loved the world. He's described as the son of man, the one who we are supposed to tell on the mountain about as we sang this morning, the one called Emmanuel or God with us, the one that's born of a virgin, the one who is given gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Who is this son that we celebrate the birth of around this time of year? Really, we celebrate his incarnation, his coming every single week. Well, let's move on to Paul's description. He gives us a, he gives us a phenomenal description in verses 1, or verses 15 through 23. And this will be our main passage for today. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is one of the most succinct yet beautiful, beautifully written descriptions of Jesus in, in Scripture. It's only, I mean, eight verses long, but it's, it gives pretty much everything we need to know about Jesus. 
but it's so full of, of depth and theology that we almost, we need to go, go through it like line by line to fully capture what Paul is telling us in this passage. In verse 15, he says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. It recalls, this phrase recalls phrasing from Genesis verse, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where it says that God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are created in Christ, or in God's, in God's image, but we know that Jesus isn't a created being. In John 8, 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And he's not just saying that he's old, otherwise he'd say, Before Abraham was, I was. But he uses the present tense, claiming to be eternal. He's also claiming to be God, and we know that because it's the same word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's the same word, ego, me, I am. And we also know that he's claiming to be God because the people that he said this to immediately picked up stones to stone him because they believed he was, being, he was speaking blasphemy. So Jesus is God. We know that, that by saying he's the image of the invisible God, it's more than how we are created in God's image. This word they use, that's used for image is where we get the word icon or something that reflects something else. It's, it's likeness is a word that's attached to this, that Jesus is the exact likeness of God. But that doesn't fully, it's, it's truly in this passage that we see words fail to describe Jesus perfectly. And likeness doesn't quite give us that explanation that we need. Paintings are an image or an icon of someone, but they're not a perfect one. Pictures, too, are images, but not perfect ones. Videos, we can't get the full picture of someone through these things. Jesus is more than just, just an image. He's the manifestation of God. That's what Paul means when he says that he's the image of God, that it is when we see Jesus, we are looking at God. When Jesus says or acts, it is God saying, speaking, and acting. The exact nature and being of God are perfectly revealed in Christ. In John 1, 1 1-3, John describes this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. We are created in God's image, but it's it's not quite what Jesus, who Jesus is, that he is the perfect manifestation of God. Paul fleshes this out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. He says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that the glory of God 
can be seen in Jesus. That when we look at Christ, we see the perfect image, the perfect manifestation of God. That yes, we are created in God's image, we reflect God, there are things about us that reflect who God is, but because of sin that has been distorted. And we weren't even the perfect image of God to begin with. Jesus is. Everything he says and does is what God would have said, or what God says and does. He is God in the flesh, and that's what we mean when we say that Jesus is the incarnated God, that he is God in the flesh. But Paul knows that that's not enough to describe Christ. He says later on in verse 15 that he is the firstborn over all creation. That word firstborn has gotten a lot of people into trouble, and when we look at words like this, we have to use scripture to interpret scripture. In Psalm 89, 27, the psalmist writes, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Paul is using the word firstborn as a status, that Jesus is the firstborn, meaning he is the heir to everything that God has. And in this culture, it was so much more important to be the firstborn because you got everything that your parents gave you. It's what Jacob and Esau fought over. It's what Jacob deceived his brother to get from him, is that status of being the firstborn. I'm the firstborn in my family, and it doesn't mean nearly as much as it did to to people in this culture. So he's saying that Jesus has the status of firstborn, not meaning that he was created, not meaning that he was the first thing, first being created like Jehovah's Witnesses and Arians believe, but it's that Jesus has the status of the firstborn over everything in this world, that everything was created for him. Paul is speaking about what's called the pre-existent Christ or the cosmic Christ, the Christ before creation, the one that was, that before Abraham was, I am Christ. And it's this cosmic Christ in whom creation came to be and is sustained. And it's not just in this passage in verse 16 where it says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It's not just in this passage that we see this. We've seen it in John 1, verses 1 to 3 already, but in Colossians, in Colossians, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, and we are through him. All things are through Christ were created. In, John, in Romans 8, 19 to 21, Paul shows how redemption is secured by Christ's works but also, it, it won't just benefit us. It won't just benefit believers, the redemption, but it will also benefit the whole of creation, that everything will be made new, not just us. So we see that, <clears throat> excuse me, that in Christ, everything is under his power because it was created through him. He is the agent of creation. Colossians says that by him, all things were created. Other translations say, in him, all things are created. That in the realm or sphere of his power, everything that is, was created. There's nothing that is created outside of his power. 
Every single thing in our world was created through him and for him. So what is Paul communicating here? He's communicating that Jesus is the originator of creation. That God mediated creation, the creation of all things through him, and, and he worked creation of all things through Christ. That it is by the power of Jesus that all things are created. All things in every place, of every sort, and of every rank. In, in this past year, this craziness of 2020, that's probably the biggest thing that, that I've held to is that there is safety, or that I've learned, is that there's safety and security in knowing that Jesus is king. That regardless of, of whatever pandemic or whatever rules or laws the government puts in place, whoever's, over, whoever's our ruler, that Jesus ultimately is king. That nothing happens outside of his will or his authority. And that's one of the reasons we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Because it is the birth of our Savior and our King, and Him coming to earth in the flesh. Paul here is fighting against, against heresies. This Colossian church was fighting against the heresy that promoted the worship of angels, it downplayed the worship of Christ. And clearly, Paul is showing that Jesus is before all things in rank because of his role in creation that everything ultimately answers to him. Everything and everyone ultimately answers to him. And that's even, that's something that's, that I've seen recently in our world is that people were pushing back on, on Christians saying that Jesus is king in the midst of the election because it was, it was um, what they said was no longer relevant right now. And it's the same thing that Paul is fighting against in the book of Colossians, that Jesus is king, that everyone answers to him, that all of creation and every ruler and authority answers to Jesus, because he is the architect of all of creation. And how that works, I have absolutely no idea. It's one of those concepts that no matter how hard I, I try to understand it fully, I never will. It's what what in Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things are the Lord's. What 2 Timothy 3, 16 says that scripture, everything revealed in scripture is sufficient for faith. Scripture doesn't explain every single little detail about this world, but what it does is give us what is sufficient for us to believe in and worship God. But we know that scripture reiterates Jesus' role in creation over and over. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him, not, or without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Hebrews 1, 2, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. But Paul doesn't just talk about Jesus's role in creation. He also talks about the goal of creation, that all things were created through him and for him. They were created for his worship, that Christ is the goal of creation, that history is moving toward a goal where the whole created universe will glorify Christ. 
It's what in Philippians 2, 10 and 11 talks about, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That everything points to the return of Jesus and, that, and that's why the world will be made new. The goal of cre- all creation is the glorification of Christ. All of creation leads us to worshiping him. And then Paul moves on in verse 17. He says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That everything falls under his authority, that he ranks above all. There is nothing in this world that is greater than Jesus. He is also the, the sustainer of all things. Just as all things were created through him, everything by his power is sustained and continues on. It sums up of the, this, this verse, verse 17, sums up the essence of what Paul means by saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That he sustains it all and he ranks above it all. That he is the heir to all things, he ranks above all things, and he is preeminent. He is before all things. So those two verses, three verses, sum up Paul's description of Jesus' relationship with the old creation, with, with our current world. It was brought into being by him, through him, and for him. But then Paul looks forward to the new creation, and Paul clearly is connecting the two, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but poetically and creatively, he connects the two. In verse 18, he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of the church, that he is the one that we answer to. In Ephesians, Paul compares the relationship with the husband and the wife with Jesus and the church. That just as Jesus is the head of the body, so is the husband the head of his family. And what that means is that ultimately we don't, we don't answer to any governor or any president or any other ruler, but ultimately we answer to Christ. That no matter what happens in this world, we will answer to Jesus at the end of it all. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the one that guides and instructs the church. And it's this imagery of of the church as a body that paints a beautiful picture because it doesn't say that he is the head of the church who is all the same, but he uses our bodies, which every single part of our body functions for the same purpose, but it all functions differently. The hand is different than the foot, but there is unity in this diversity, and we need every part of our body to function properly. It's the same way with the church. We need every single part of the church in order to function properly. And Paul here isn't just referring to the Colossian church, but he's referring to the universal church or the big C church, that the the entirety of believers is what Jesus is the head over. But he hasn't lost individuality within the body. He knows that he is different than Timothy or than the ruler or the, the leaders of this Colossian church. But he, he's emphasizing that we are unified for a single goal, worshiping God and making disciples of all nations. That we follow after Christ's command to spread the gospel and make disciples of all nations. We live lives that are pleasing to him 
and as he prays for, in the, Col- for the Colossians in verses 9 to 14, that we live lives that are, ma- that we live lives that are lived in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of our calling as believers in Jesus Christ. We are baptized by one Holy Spirit into one body of believers, the church. So Jesus is the head of the body, of the, which is the church. And then in 18, he continues on. He says, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That there is nothing that Jesus isn't preeminent or that he isn't before. He reiterates again that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the heir to everything, the first one to be resurrected. He's preeminent in creation. That's what Paul talks about in verse 15. And then he's preeminent in the resurrection or the new creation. That he is the the one that is before everything else to to be resurrected and made new. He's communicating a sense of primacy and ranking, yet again emphasizing that there is nothing that is before Jesus. Not angels, not people, nothing but Christ is over this world. In verse 19, he says, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's communicating that God was fully, or that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that he is the human manifestation of God. He perfectly reveals who God is, that Christ always has been God and always will be God. When we, when we have Christ, we have all of God in human form, is how one commentator describes this. That in Jesus is God. Any teaching that diminishes or takes away from this is a false teaching. And that's what Paul is fighting against here in Colossians. And then verse 20, he continues and says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the pinnacle of this hymn. This is what everything has been building up to, that it is through Christ everything is reconciled, whether it's on earth or in heaven, that everything is made into, into right relationship. It's only through Jesus that man and God are reconciled. Peace is made by the blood of the cross of Christ. Through this Jesus Christ, the son that we celebrate annually, who is preeminent and supreme over both the old creation and the new creation, reconciliation comes. And when we, that's, that's just a big word to describe people getting back in, or two parties getting back into right relationship. That before Christ's sacrifice on the cross, there was separation, there was, there was this whole process, which is the law, for man to even attempt to be in right relationship with God, which the law shows that we can't do anything in ourselves to be made right with God. It's only through Jesus that we are made into right relationship with God because of our sin. Through Christ, there is peace between God and his creation. Through Christ, there is peace between God and man. And through Christ, there is true peace between man and man. It is only in Jesus that can we be in right relationship with everything around us. 
in verses 15 to 17 and 18 to 21, we see a beautiful picture of, of Jesus and the reconciliation and who he is. In verses 15 through 17, it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, um, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in verse 18 to 20, he uses similar language, and this is to paint the picture that, that these verses, these, these two worlds, the old creation and the new creation, both answer to Jesus. In verse 18, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is showing here that Jesus is over every single thing, that there is nothing in this world or nothing in the new creation that won't be under his rule. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with this, the depth of Paul's hymn here? Well, in verses 21 to 23, he gives us our application. And there's six, six Christo Christological takeaways here. I'll read the verses, and then we'll go through them uh, one by one. It says in verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So the first takeaway that we get from, from Paul's passage is peace that comes by the cross. Verse 21, And you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were estranged, estranged from God. Every single one of us has sinned against God, and because of that, we aren't in right relationship with God. We aren't in right relationship with our Creator, the one who will judge us or judge the world when all things come to an end. Every single one of us were alienated and hostile in mind. We were outright hostile to God. But Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We are reconciled through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Through our faith in, in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are able to go before God and be in right relationship with him. Jesus, not us, not anything that we did, Jesus has made our relationship with God right. Jesus has, has done the work needed so that we can be in right relationship with God, so that we can be made holy and righteous before him. And the only thing that he asks of us is to profess faith in him and to follow his commands, to repent and believe. And if you have not done that this morning, I pray, 
I pray that you would, that you would see who Jesus truly is and, and make him your Lord and your Savior. He is the one who humbled himself by becoming human and died as a punishment reserved for the worst of the worst, reserved for us. He is the one who died on the cross so that we could be in right relationship with him. He bore our sins upon the cross. And Paul continues on. He says in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. This is the life that we're called to live, that we continue in the faith. We don't shift from the hope of the gospel, but we continue on in it. We remain stable and steadfast. The Christian life is more than just praying a prayer and calling it good. It's more than just walking down an aisle. It's more than, it's more than just one singular moment. That, that prayer that we pray when we, when we profess faith in Christ is the beginning of it. That's my biggest frustration with Christian movies is that everything builds up to the prayer typically. Everything builds up to the profession of faith, but in reality, that is the beginning of the Christian life. That is not the end. From there, everything goes on. We are called to continue in the faith. We must be stable and steadfast. We must not shift from the gospel. We must fight against the false teachings of this world. We must be secure in our faith, and that doesn't mean that we can't doubt, but that means that ultimately everything leads back to Jesus, that we have faith and trust in him, that when we seek out our answers, we do so wisely, that we go to Christian mentors, we go to scripture. We don't go to people who don't know the answers, but we go to scripture, which is sufficient for faith. We cannot be taken captive by worldly philosophies is what Paul is saying. And he says that in in Colossians 2. And there's plenty out there. I think 2020 has showed us how many different philosophies and false teachings there are and how easy it is to fall into those, right? But we must continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Put our faith in Christ and continue on with that. The second takeaway is understanding the goal of the cross. And understanding this goal helps us to keep perspective, especially as we celebrate Christmas. The primary goal of the cross is to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That on the last day that God would complete our sanctification, his work in us, and we will be presented before Christ's judgment seat, and we won't be condemned. That we will will safely pass through because we were in Christ and we continued in the faith, stable and steadfast, that that we worked with God to complete our sanctification. Our primary goal as believers is to become more like Christ. That changes who we are It changes how we treat others, and it changes how we respond to God. It doesn't change our awe and our fear of God, but it changes the fact that we know we are in right relationship with him. The third takeaway is seeing Jesus in the comparison 
with the temple of God. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the midst of his people in the tabernacle and later in the temple in Jerusalem. That that's where the presence of God was. In the New Testament, or since the New Testament, God has come to dwell among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John 1.14 says, The eternal Son became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Christ is God's divine presence embodied in the new age of the new creation. And in that time, God in Christ will dwell with his people forever. That there will be no separation between God and his creation. That, we will, that he will dwell with us. The fourth takeaway is in verse 16. The reason that the Son is given this title, the title of firstborn, is because all things were created by him, through him, and for him. He existed before creation, and now he holds it all together. And all of these assertions, all of these facts, demonstrate that Jesus himself is not part of the creation. It's not what the Jehovah's Witnesses profess, that Jesus is a created being, but that he is the reason for everything, that everything was created through him. He shares in the activities that elsewhere in Scripture are given to God because Jesus is the Son of God and is fully God and man. And that brings us to our fifth and final point that, that, that we understand the humanity of Christ, which is why we celebrate Christmas. That Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, with, which alludes to his humanity, as do the phrases making peace by the blood of his cross, through his, the, his body of flesh by his death. The eternal divine son took on the flesh of humanity in what theologians call the incarnation. That Jesus didn't, wasn't just this spiritual being that, that came to earth all of a sudden and shared the gospel, but he lived a human life, and that is vital to our faith. Because that means that Jesus understands what we are going through. That we can tangibly say that Jesus gets it. He experienced hunger and thirst. He experienced the loss of loved ones. He experienced learning and what it meant to grow up. He experienced the human life. He experienced death and suffering and pain. That that is the Son of God who we celebrate the birth of. And he did all of that in order to rescue us from our enslavement to sin and death. This passage is all about proclaiming who Christ is, both in deity and in humanity. What he has done and what he will do and who he is. So who is this child that we celebrate every single year, really every single week and every single day? Who is this child the Son of God that we, that we pray to, that we lift up, that we worship, that we call our Lord and Savior. He is the one who is the manifestation of God in the flesh, the one who is the firstborn of all creation, that th- the one who, through whom everything was created, the firstborn of the dead, the preeminent one, the one who made peace between God and man through his death on the cross. The one whose birth 
is worth celebrating every single year, week, and day. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and, and for its truth. I pray that, that this truth that Jesus and who he is and what he has done would, would ring true in our hearts as we celebrate Christmas this year. That it's not something that we would forget as in the midst of all the craziness of, of Christmas lights and gifts and presents, that we'd remember the, re- the real reason why we are celebrating. That it is the birth of your son and the work that he did on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.